This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Fate of Suicides. Created by Alex Dolan. Unlike Kevin Acampo, Sutton Chambers lived at home and had no girlfriend. Sutton Chambers also had much different parents. When Blossom phoned the Chambers house and asked if they knew where their son was, he got this response. Damn if I know. Piece of shit. This was Clay Ransom, Sutton's stepfather, and the only member of the family they could reach. When asked, Ransom came down to the station to identify the body. He was a muscular man with a shaved head and a trimmed beard that detailed his jaw with a fine black line. Clay Ransom seemed uncomfortable when he arrived at the police station, and Blossom supposed he had good reason. He had a record of armed robbery and assault, and had done a few years for pistol-whipping a retired woman in a grocery store parking lot. He had an affiliation with the 106th Concrete Mob, confirmed by the tattoo on his shoulder. Ransom was released from prison in 2014, and the police hadn't charged him since then, although there was an arrest last year. He was either clean or careful. Sutton Chambers seemed to be heading down the same path. A few calls had been made to break up fights between Sutton Chambers and Clay Ransom. On one occasion, the two of them slashed each other with kitchen knives. Sutton had an affiliation with the 106th Concrete Mob. The signature tattoo on his body had been partially scraped off when the train hit him, but the medical examiner noted the partial tattoo that remained. Gibson and Blossom both thanked Ransom for coming, and he shrugged off the courtesy. Whatever. Let's get this over with. They led him to the morgue. Yesterday, the staff had cleaned out the chamber that held the body of Kevin Acampo. Now a new occupant lay on the same sliding slab. Gibson rolled it out and pulled back the sheet, giving Ransom room to inspect the body. Shit. Looks like someone melted his face. After the initial shock of the condition of the body, he looked over the face with an almost clinical detachment. That's him. I'm sure it's him. Can I go? They pressured Clay Ransom into staying for questioning. Instead of heading to Blossom's office, they sat down in an interrogation room. Ransom might have recognized the familiar cinder blocks, mirror, and pendant lighting from the last time he had been charged. The man shifted uncomfortably in his steel chair. You know I don't have nothing to do with that. That kid made his own mess. He was a piece of shit. You told us. When was the last time you saw him? He went out last night sometime. So, whenever that was. Can you be more specific on the timing? Fuck if I know. I'm not his secretary. Can you tell us where you were last night? I was with his mama all night. 
she'll confirm that? She know what's good for her. Reading the expressions in the room, Clay Ransom understood this might have been the wrong thing to say. Look, if I killed that boy, you'd never find the body. Gibson and Blossom ended the interview and let Ransom leave. Retiring to Blossom's office, they posted a photo of Sutton Chambers on the corkboard underneath Kevin Acampo. Blossom looked over the list of Clay Ransom's charges. There's a long history of violence between Clay Ransom and the family. Last year, Ransom was brought in for domestic disturbance. Despite the bruises, Amani Chambers dropped the charges. Sutton is mentioned in the report. In 2011, Sutton's arm was broken during an accident at home, but Amani refused to pin blame on Ransom. Sutton was hospitalized and the doctors called CPS. Subsequently, Sutton was taken out of his home for three months. Piece of shit. Didn't Sutton Chambers have Clay's credit card in his wallet? He did indeed. I wonder if Clay even knows it's missing. Can you get a warrant to search Clay's credit card records? Just to see what comes up. If we want to follow the money, we'll have to do it through Clay Ransom. Maybe Mom's credit cards, too? Why not? This kid have his own money? No bank account and no credit cards. My guess is he was a cash-only kind of guy. Good news on the sim for Sutton Chambers, by the way. The lab was able to get it up and running. Around the time the train hit him, he was on the line with an unknown number. Any connections with Kevin Ocampo? We checked to see if Sutton had Kevin Ocampo in his address book. We didn't find anything, unless he had Kevin listed under another name. I need to check call logs on both phones to be sure. They might not have known each other. They both went to Roosevelt High School. That doesn't mean anything. According to the file, Sutton Chambers dropped out of Roosevelt his senior year. Even if he didn't, we're talking about 500 students. There are people I haven't met on the floor of this building. That might say more about your social skills. It might. Detective, I I found the thing you were looking for. The patrolman held up a clear plastic bag containing something orange. This was half buried in the gravel. You said if we found it, you wanted to see it right away. Good work, officer. Blossom took the bag and patted him on the shoulder, which the younger man took as a cue to leave. What's his name? You have no idea what that man's name is? None at all. I'm proving my earlier point about Kevin Ocampo and Sutton Chambers knowing each other. Maybe they did, and maybe they didn't. Nathan Slate. That officer's name is Nathan Slate. Nate Slate. How could I have forgotten? Twenty bucks says you won't remember it a week from now. I'm writing it down. You're on. Blossom picked up the orange item in the bag. It was another Lucha Libre mask with a tangerine background and a wild spray of red flames that ran from the eye holes up across the forehead and off the top of the mask. That what I think it is? Indeed it is. Blossom held the bag an inch from him and looked at the dirt and blood that smudged the orange fabric. What do you suppose the odds are that we'd find one of these things at each crime scene? I'd say pretty slim, but you never know. You think we should go to a Lucha Libre match? If you found a Mickey Mouse mask, would you want to go to Disneyland? Hold on. He set down the mask and went back to his computer. A few moments later, his small laser jet printer chugged to life and spat out a few sheets. He posted two more photographs on the corkboard to the right of Kevin Acampo and Sutton Chambers. Who are those guys? Patrice Moody. Isaiah Bright. These are the only two identified shooters from the 2015 BART shooting. We identified them because they were shot dead on sight. They both attended Roosevelt High School. When they died, they were recent grads. Blossom retrieved a case file from March 25th, 2015. They both read through it. 
The incident occurred at 10.24 p.m. at the Coliseum Station on BART. Though officially categorized as a multiple offender robbery, the common name for it was a flash rob. They usually didn't put much effort into these cases because the victims of flash robs mostly didn't get hurt and property loss was minimal. The perpetrators took cell phones, tablets, headphones, and electronics, occasionally jewelry. In each scene, the strategy was the same. Amass a large group of people in one place at a specific time, steal items in plain sight, and run. Over and done in a minute. The victims were too overwhelmed to react, and the thieves escaped before the police could respond. Flash robs were perfect for younger, inexperienced offenders. It was a crime with training wheels. The flash rob that occurred on March 25, 2015, had two anomalous factors. First, the perps wore masks, ridiculous Mexican wrestling masks. Most flash robbers didn't bother covering their faces because they knew, even with the cameras on them, no one would ever be arrested. Maybe these ones did it to be theatrical, or maybe they were just more cautious about remaining anonymous. Blossom considered how wearing a mask, any mask, would limit vision and wondered if the limited vision might have made some of them jumpier and more prone to aggression. The second and more obvious anomaly was the gunfire. This is what turned the crime from the typical petty offense to a multiple homicide. 17 injured and nine dead, including one BART police officer. In addition, two perps were shot and killed trying to escape. Patrice Moody and Isaiah Bright. They were 18 and 19 respectively and were the only two men the police had been able to identify. Before the gunfire, the robbery had been progressing without much resistance. According to witnesses, there wasn't much talk on the train other than the robbers shouting threats and swearing. In most cases, the victims kept their eyes down and tried not to make eye contact with the young men robbing them. It was possible that one of the passengers had a gun. According to forensics, six guns had been fired on that cramped train car. Only four were retrieved. Blossom suspected at least one of those guns belonged to a passenger because of how the forensics evidence revealed crisscross bullet patterns. Also, he couldn't imagine that one of the perps would have started shooting unless he felt threatened. The story of the newlyweds got under his skin. Technically, they were engaged, but the press called them newlyweds, and Blossom liked to think of them as such. The couple had gotten engaged that evening. She had just put the ring on her finger two hours before. They were at the Warriors game, and he proposed on the Jumbotron. The media played footage of their on-camera kiss whenever they ran the story. During the robbery, the woman was reluctant to give up her ring. She fought her attacker, and the man slammed her head into a support pole. Her fiancé fought back, but got his nose broken. In the moment, Blossom doubted anyone knew how severe the woman's injuries were. They probably wouldn't have guessed she would die in the hospital three days later. Once the BART police came, a standoff ensued. The robbers ducked for cover, and the thieves with guns shot out the windows. With the conductors having fled their post, the doors remained open, but only a few riders ran through them. Down the platform, the riders in adjoining cars confused the scene by running out through the car doors and sprinting down the platform and down the staircases. One of the thieves firing wildly at the police hit Officer Jim Keller above his right eye, killing him instantly. Two other officers held cover and only returned fire when they had clear shots of Moody and Bright fleeing across the platform. With the gunfire escalating, more passengers on the train decided to fight back. Trapped in a packed car, some reported they felt like they had nothing to lose. As victims wrestled with perps, bullets ripped through people. Blossom imagined the tight quarters, the smell of gunpowder and blood in the air. He imagined their hearts throbbing in people's throats, slipping in the blood. A gun going off in someone's face. The explosive gore. 
and the deafening explosion must have stirred the adrenaline and cortisol in them until they stopped thinking. They became a writhing, thick mass of fear. Some of the passengers crawled out the doors on their elbows and fled any way they could. Victims and perpetrators alike spilled out of the windows like rodents. One of the nine who died was electrocuted when she fell on the live rail. Most of the perps piled through the shattered windows on the far side of the car. They leapt onto the tracks and ran down the rails into the night, eventually disappearing into the residential neighborhoods in Oakland. After 12 excruciating minutes, the train was pockmarked on the inside, bullets embedded in the ceiling and floor. All the windows had shattered. The remaining passengers groaned from their injuries. Others didn't move at all. Blossom started to make a list of names. Hi, this is Alex Dolan, the creator of The Patron Saint of Suicides. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you want to go deeper, we have created a Patreon page, patreon.com slash P-S-O-S, and you can get 15 mini bonus episodes, lots of behind-the-scenes content, and other benefits. So check it out at patreon.com slash P-S-O-S. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the show. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I have a Spartan setup at home. It's a small studio apartment where I've lived for 18 months. I'm still getting used to the tightness of the space. My place in Oakland was much larger. When I moved out, I gave away a lot. What I have left is a single couch that pulls out into a bed. 
A coffee table doubles as my desk, and on the far wall I keep a small table with a petite LCD TV and the necessary streaming services so I don't have to pay a cable bill. I'll be honest, the place kinda sucks. It's a cave because I don't open my windows. God knows who or what would crawl through them if I did. To keep the place habitable, I run two oscillating fans that recirculate the air. That's my bubble. I tell myself it's temporary. Nick is half asleep next to me, but lifts his head whenever he hears an unfamiliar jangle outside. If I didn't wear earplugs, the traffic would keep me up all night. I sit on the edge of my mattress and work on my laptop. Both my phones lie on the table, and I check them whenever I hear a buzz. David has found a way to call me again. I don't like it. It's starting to make me feel unsafe. When I saw him at the club the other night, as soon as I got off stage, I asked the bouncer to throw him out. But David already left before anyone could grab him. He's different now. Angrier now that we're close to the anniversary again. He was angry last year and stalked me for a bit. I'd catch him hanging around outside my building. I feel unsafe whenever I'm by myself at night in San Francisco. Add a stalker to this and I get pretty paranoid. Why won't you fucking listen to me? Just fucking stop and listen for once! Once he grabbed me by the shoulders and forced me against the wall of my building, he just pinned me there in place while he cried on me. I was fucking terrified. I wished him to go away. And after the anniversary passed, he did. Until a month ago. Now he's back. He's calling me. He's showing up unannounced. He left a birthday card on my windshield for fuck's sake. I feel like he might be watching me at any given moment. Every time I hear heavy footfalls on the sidewalk, I freeze for a moment until they pass. I think about him every time I patrol on the bridge, and I find myself looking behind me more when I'm out. When we were together, David was funny. And I am attracted to funny. Now I just see a sour and angry man. His features, which I had once accepted, even doted over, I find ugly. The mole on his upper lip looks like a precancerous lesion. The tight, curly hair just seems like the resignation of someone who couldn't choose a better look. His glasses aren't geek chic. They're the face-hiding frames of a desperate loner. His body type isn't average, it's doughy. I still remember when he pinned me to the building. And I'm afraid of what he might do if he becomes truly unhinged. Now I worry that his bitterness might lead to rage. I try to distract myself from these thoughts with the TV. One of my father's movies is playing. It's Money, 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 where he played a corrupt banker. This was back in his heyday, and he's hysterical in it. At this point, I could probably recite the whole movie from memory. I still get little chills in the opening credits when I see his name flash up on the screen. Toby Gensler. Comedy icon. I keep the volume down and occasionally look up to see Dad. He keeps me company. 
I should be working on my new material right now, but beyond thoughts of my dad, I've been web-stalking Wesley Pope for the past hour. I frown, thinking that David might be doing the same to me. There's not much about him when I search his real name. He's been tagged in a few photos in my image search, one from a formal gala in New York where he's posed with an arm around Shepard Fairey's shoulder. His stage name gets the most hits. Before Wesley Pope sold out and got a job in the gaming biz, he honed his skills with a full-ride scholarship to Interlochen, one of the finest art schools in the country. When he got out, he started working on mural projects and, since coming home to the Bay Area, he has completed 17 outdoor projects in the East Bay. For his street art, he goes by the name Bishop. That's B-Z-S-H-P. I rub Nick on the stomach as I scroll through a gallery of Bishop's work. I wish I knew more about art, because I don't know how to describe it or who to compare him to, but I think it's beautiful. He does a lot with halos, depicting strong men and women from Oakland with a divine halo behind them. There's something timeless about the work, as if it might have been painted a hundred years ago. The subjects in the mural seem regal to me. They make me think about being powerful. I know the number. It's Richard from the other night. He's messaged me a photo of him playing with dogs at a local pound. He texts, I think I might adopt one. I'm tempted to take a photo of Nicholas Van Orton and send it to him, but it's too personal. Instead, I message back. It's great to see you playing with them. Do you think you're ready for a dog? He replies, Hard to say. Maybe I should think on it. Smiley face. He's using emojis. That's a good sign. Let me know, I write, bidding him sweet dreams. The movie is still playing in the background. My dad has gotten his penis caught in a counterfeiting machine, and the dollar bills spewing out of the machine all have phallic silhouettes on them. I never said my dad's films were high art, but I still love them. These are my home videos. My phone buzzes again. I pick it up, so easily distracted tonight, and it's Diego. He's messaged me a selfie. He's dressed in a black suit. He looks like a Chippendale stripper in an Undertaker costume. Up for a drink? He asks with a four. One day I might give in out of sheer boredom. I suppose he's romantic in an overly tenacious Pepe Le Pew sort of way. He makes me laugh, although not in the way I think he intends. Still, he's harmless. I reply, in for the night, with the number four. I work on a new joke, and this is what I have so far. I'm bad at dating, but I know it's me. For me, getting a new boyfriend would be like replacing my anus and expecting the farts to smell better. I try it a few different ways, practice different versions out loud. Jesus, I feel like a switchboard operator tonight. This time, it's an unknown number. I imagine David on the other end, and I hate myself for being afraid, but I am. Looking up to my drawn blinds, I imagine him waiting outside, 
A pair of boots clop past my window and I gasp. I need to be strong. I am strong, I tell myself. I answer. We met the other night. You gave me this number. You said to call you if I needed to. She sounds exhausted and afraid. I'm glad you called. What's your name again? Rebecca. I remember her. Weeks ago on the bridge. Naturally beautiful, but dressed down, in corduroys and a knit hat, with some residual acne on her forehead. Nose piercing. You're not some scam artist, are you? I'd be a bad one if I were, since I've never made a penny off this. Like a lot of people who call me, she needs a minute to warm up. I can hear her take a few deep breaths. She's about to start the serious talk. I'm calling because of my family. I've heard my share of stories about family abuse, and I'm ready to hear anything she has to tell me. But Rebecca says something I've never heard. This is going to sound stupid, but I feel like I might be cursed to follow in my mother's footsteps. How so? Do you think suicide can be hereditary? The thing is, my mother committed suicide maybe 10 years ago now, and I've been fighting the same urges to, to hurt myself. I don't know if it's a coincidence or if it's an impulse passed down from my mom. Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. Can I tell you something I don't tell many people? Sure. My father committed suicide. Seriously? No joke. I was four at the time. Did you find him? Such a morbid question. But everyone asks. I did find him. It was awful. I found my mom. She's beyond grief at this point. Just numb to her memories. She waits for me to continue. Here's what I went through. I spent years wondering the same thing. Whether I was sad because my father died or whether my father's predisposition to depression and self-harm had been passed on to me, my best guess is that it's a little of both. Have you ever seen a therapist? All kinds. I have a psychiatrist and a therapist. I keep the psychiatrist for the drugs, but most psychiatrists fumble through the therapy. So I have to find a therapist too. The problem with therapists is I keep burning through them. I... I don't connect with everyone. And it's just fucking boring for me to have to start over with a new one and having to spend a few weeks with them before I can tell if it's going to work or not. It's like dating without the sex. For me, dating is like dating without the sex. What are you looking for? Empathy. I just feel like most of my therapists don't give a shit about me. It's hard to find the right match, no doubt about it. Are you a doctor? No, I'm not. Has anyone diagnosed you? A few times. They always come up with borderline personality disorder. I hate that diagnosis. Do you know what borderlines are like? It's the pain in the ass disease. We're depressed all the time and cry wolf about feeling suicidal. It's like being fucking Eeyore. For 10 years, I feel like doctors have been telling me that I'm making my own pain. But when I feel depressed, I really do feel depressed. When I feel alone, I really feel alone. And when I feel like I might kill myself, I really feel like I'm going to kill myself. It doesn't feel like a false alarm to me. I feel like I'm close to imploding every day. I believe what you're feeling is real. 
But? But nothing. I think what you're feeling is real. That's a common way to feel if you're borderline. But I don't want to feel this way. No one does. That's the problem with having finely tuned antennae for emotions. What do you mean? You're sensitive, and I mean that in a good way. It means you can read people better than most. That's kind of a superpower. So, when I think everyone hates me, I'm actually right? I think you care about what people think about you. That's not always a bad thing, but it can create problems. You know what draws people together? Sure. Beauty and money. I feel sorry that she doesn't realize how beautiful she is. And I can tell by her response, she doesn't have any money. People will want you more if you don't give a fuck about them. The more you reach out, the more you need to be loved, the less likely it is for you to find people to care about you. Doesn't that suck? Yeah, it makes me want to not be on this planet. I might be losing Rebecca. That's not the answer. The answer is to not give a fuck about what people think. The more you're able to not give a fuck about what people think, the more people will be drawn to you. I let this sink in. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you should start being a bitch, but if you can live your life without needing affection and affirmation, you're a lot more likely to attract it. That sounds like some kind of hippie feel-good shit. Not at all. A hippie would probably ask you to feel unconditional love for everyone around you, even your enemies. I don't believe that. You can still hate shitty people if you want. You can still love the good people. You just don't need any of them. Wouldn't that make me some kind of robot? You'd still have your high-tuned emotional antennae. It means that when you do connect with people who like and respect you, you'll forge deeper relationships with them. So, how do I stop giving a fuck? Several ways. And it's your choice. And I should say, it's not as easy as flipping a switch. It never is. But there are several methods you can try. One is meditation. Becoming at peace with the world as it is and present in the moment is one way of stopping yourself from obsessing over what people are thinking. I've tried it. It doesn't work for me. You need to commit to it daily for a year. It doesn't happen overnight. And it's probably going to be harder for you because you have more squirrels in your brain. Once you get the hang of it, it can give you peace. Rebecca isn't convinced. What else? Drugs. And lots of them. Seriously? The best thing an anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication can do for you is quiet down your brain. So bombs can go off all around you and you can stroll through it all as if you're walking through a poppy field. I don't want to be some dumbed-down slobbering zombie. Popular misconception. Medication won't do that to you. Well, the right medication won't do that to you. If you find the right mix, you'll just feel normal. You're going to a shrink right now. What does he have you on? She has me on Ambien. She thinks I have chronic insomnia. Which you probably do. I do. Have you tried any antidepressants? I've been afraid to try them. You're already seeing a doctor about meds. That's good. Next time you go, maybe explore other options. You can always add a medication to the regimen if you need it. Then I'll be on two drugs. 
Sometimes they work better when you pair two different drugs together. I don't know. Let me put it like this. Do you drink? Don't ask me how much I drink. I'm so tired of doctors asking me that. I'm not a doctor. And I'll take that as a yes. Let's put a thumbtack in that one. Do you do any other recreational drugs? You're not a cop or anything. <laughs> no. And I wouldn't be able to find you even if I was. What is it? Some pot. Edibles, mainly. Why do you drink or take edibles? Because they make me happy. Because they make me forget the things that make me sad. Or, said in another way, because they help you not give a fuck. Rebecca is coming around. I can hear her tone lift. Okay. So, you already take drugs. Prescription drugs aren't that much of a leap from edibles and potables. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a doctor, and medication isn't the only answer. I think finding a therapist you connect with is important. Over time, that can work if it's the right connection. But you need to give yourself time. So what do I do in the meantime when I feel like shit? Distract yourself. What's your favorite place in the area? I don't really get out much. We met on the Golden Gate Bridge, so you're getting out somewhere. Think, Rebecca. What do you like to do? She takes a moment to think, or maybe she's just shy about telling me. She gives me a cagey answer. I'm part of a club. Great. What kind of club? She takes her time before she decides to tell me. It's a BDSM place in the Tenderloin. I'm a submissive. I have friends from the club and we get together outside. So you've got your distraction right there. Do you think that stuff could be unhealthy for me? Are you getting hurt? No. Does it make you happy? It does. Do you worry about your depression when you're... engaged? No. I guess I don't. Then we have our distraction. Do you think you can focus on distracting yourself enough while you try out medication, meditation, or therapy? Maybe all three? I can give it some thought. That usually means no. But I think she's contemplating it. Will you be safe tonight? I think so. I believe her. Let me know how it goes, will you? She says she will. I tell her she is loved, even if she doesn't believe me. <sighs> Damnation! Someone has messaged me a photo. It's the number that has been calling and leaving dead air messages. It's a photo of a door. Something blue is on the doorstep. I zoom in and see it's a plush toy. A stuffed animal. A dolphin. It's hard for me to breathe. For fuck's sake, why is he doing this to me? I zoom out, and then I see it. It's not just a door. I know this door. It's my door. Against all instincts, I rush to my kitchen and find my chef's knife. I throw open the door and look up and down the dim hallway for a trace of David. No one's there. But by my feet, I find a small blue dolphin.
every five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.